Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly look at all things royal brought to you from Mail HQ right here in Kensington. I'm Jo Elvin and joining me this week is my expert panel, Kate Manzi, assistant editor at The Mail on Sunday and writer and broadcaster, Julia Hartley Brewer. Welcome to you both, all girls. Is this allowed? Is this proper? We'll see how we get on. Let's start with the updated version of Finding Freedom that has just come out. I don't know if you heard that. It's been updated, yes, with what its authors say is more insider information on the fallout from Megxit. The Sussexes say they haven't contributed to the writing of the book, but let's get to the views of the panel on this now. Now, Julia, I'm going to start with you. It's been updated. Mm-hmm. One of the key themes, at least to my mind, remains the same, that, uh, you know, across the pond, Harry and Meghan aren't very happy with the palace. Um, Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it sounds a very familiar story, doesn't it? (laughs) Finding freedom from being in the public eye. Finding more freedom. Yes, from from being, you know, under the sort of auspices of the palace and the firm, as it's been dubbed over the years. Um, And yet they don't seem to have the freedom to break away and start this new life because everything they talk about, apparently, or their friends their friends yeah. talk about it seems to always be about what's going on back home in Windsor or in Buckingham Palace um, yeah it's very extraordinary it is isn't it and Kate what do you think there's there's talk in the book in this updated version of this special union between the Queen and Prince Harry and that they had some special time together when he was over for Prince Philip's funeral and it but there's this strange tension isn't there between oh it's the royal institution being sort of criticized or, or blamed in this book but you, how do you separate that from the personal with the Queen? Well, that's right. It's the contradiction at the heart of the Sussexes' argument, isn't it, really? That at every point, they're very keen to say, well, she remains, you know, Harry's grandmother. We love her dearly. So much respect for the Queen. Would never criticise the Queen. We saw it in the Oprah Winfrey interview time and time and again. Mm. But what they do want to be doing is kind of throwing bombs at the institution of the monarchy and the men in grey suits and painting it out to be a kind of faceless corporation run by mysterious shadowy characters (laughs) um which they seem to forget was in the crown (laughs) (laughs) it's a great narrative and it's a wonderful story but uh, frankly uh, you know the queen is chief and boss of the whole operation so any criticism of the institution or the firm is a direct criticism of the Queen, unfortunately. But um, they're very careful not to point that out because as every time they criticise the Queen or are seen to criticise the Queen, their popularity plummets yes. in the States. They've come very close, though, haven't they? They, they do come very close well, how to can, it. How can they keep up that dividing line? Uh, this is the issue, isn't it? Are they going to name names eventually about which royal it was they accused of uh, making what they consider to be a, a racist remark about uh, their the unborn baby, Archie, before I think she was even pregnant uh, with him? Um, um, they, eventually, they're going to actually, you know, they've actually tarred every 
everybody with the same brush. So eventually they're going to have to name names. And this is the problem with their accusations via friends. Uh, everyone is under no doubt that uh, there is certainly a, a, a information being given to this author, these authors, which uh, is coming from somewhere very close to the, this couple. Is that eventually you're going to run out of things to say? Mm. Because you, you can't just keep sort of giving the same, well, effectively, they're not selling it for money right now, but they're still in the news because of what they are willing to give away. The reason why they get their Netflix deals and the book deals is because of their willingness to talk openly about this stuff. And eventually, you know, you criticize this far, and then, well, the headline writers want a new headline. They want it to go further and further and further. More intimate details, more juicy gossip, uh, more negative stuff. So, and where does it go from here? Well, by that logic, do either of you think we will see the day when this unnamed Yes. That quote-unquote racist royal is, is named. But it's sort of hanging over it, the whole narrative, isn't it? That they've got this kind of piece of information, apparently, which they could unleash at any moment. Harry's going to release his book next year in the, you know, in the Jubilee year of all years. Yeah. And it's just quite distasteful. I, you, you sort of think, well, if you've got something to say, come out yeah. and say it. Mm. Otherwise... Maybe just or or say it in private. Down. I think most people feel yeah. Look, most families aren't perfect. People have access to grind. There'll be fallouts at Christmas Day or whatever. But you take it up private. You don't necessarily print it in the local newspaper on the front page. Let alone talk to Oprah well, Winfrey and, and print it on every yeah. national magazine and newspaper in the world. This is the kind of royal equivalent of you know having a spat aired on Facebook, isn't it, against your mother-in-law or something? Yes. I mean, very distasteful. My goodness. But now, the thing that I found extraordinary was that this updated version of the book was released on the 31st of August, which, as we know, has a significant date for other reasons in the royal family. And ordinarily, what would have been front and centre of, of the news narrative is, is the anniversary of the death of Prince Harry's mum, Princess Diana. I mean, it's kind of it's extraordinary, isn't it? That it's incredibly calculated, and I think it's really tacky. And, and I think a lot of people who've been big do, fans Do you of, think it's calculated, yes, or do you think the I, Americans just aren't putting that together in the same anyone, way? Anyone who has lost uh, a close family member will remember the date that they died. I, I, I lost a stepfather 30 years ago. I can tell you right now, it was August the 1st. Died. The idea that somehow no one could recollect uh, what day Diana died uh, to, to mark this uh, and to, to have the publication of the book. I think it's really cynical and really, really tacky. And I think they keep doing things like this and allowing things like this to happen. And, and I think this is really sort of digging away at the foundation of, of their, their claims to be victims themselves. They are looking like rather conniving sort of users at the moment. Do you, do you have any view, Kate, on how that August 31st publishing date would have been viewed in the Cambridges household? Yeah, I mean, you do wonder what's going on within within the Cambridge's household at the moment. Um, yeah, I expect it's exasperation at the Sussexes. Um, I, I mean, who, who knows whether the Sussexes had any hand in it? And it's probably just the publishers rubbing their hands together and thinking, oh, this would be a good hook mm. to uh, re-release the new Finding Freedom. But you're right, it does seem cynical, um, certainly from the kind of publishing money-making point of view. But well, this is the whole problem with the Sussexes, that... It's all about making money and establishing their brand. When are they going to have enough, do you think? Well, do you know what? As if by, by pure luck, there was an event in London last night called the GQ Awards, and we were told that while Prince Harry was entering this era of visibility, he did make another appearance via video. Uh, and it was this time to the GQ Awards. Let's hear some of what he had to say. Families around the world are being overwhelmed by mass-scale misinformation across news media and social media where those who peddle in lies and fear are creating vaccine hesitancy, which in turn is dividing communities and eroding trust. 
This is a system we need to break if we are to overcome COVID-19 and the risk of new variants. Prince Harry seems very keen to have his voice heard on the issue of media and misinformation there. I thought it was a, almost like a wasted opportunity. I think everybody agrees that particularly the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine has been wildly successful. The rollout, I mean, you know, just the spirit of the rollout and the fact that it was really much like the Olympics, volunteers were getting involved. Mm. It's a huge success story. Yeah, sure enough, you know, there's not enough access in the developing world. But the AstraZeneca um, Oxford vaccine has been wonderful. Here again, it's something we're doing wrong. You know, it's Harry lecturing us yet again, um, when it should be a moment to say, you know, it, it should have been a pat on the back for these fantastic scientists who, who created this vaccine. And yet, again, it's, he knows best. He's lecturing us on what we need to do. And I can't really see what practical steps he's doing to, to ensure that there might be money going into various projects. But um, it's, it's bizarre that he, he should use this this opportunity to make a stand. I yeah. think you're dying to say something. Oh, I, I, I just find so frustrating. Yeah. If he wants to go on as, and use his, his uh, notoriety and his fame and his uh, influence to say, hey, look, get vaccinated. This is a life-saving vaccine and, uh, you know, you should take this vaccine and you queue up. And we know particularly in America where we've, we've got uh, quite low take-up in some places. Um, that's great, but why does it... Everything he says, it has to have a negative. It has to be about the I mean, media has been... I would say, that, I mean, certainly the media in Britain has been very much pro-vaccine. I mean, often for not even questioning any of the tiny, tiny downsides and risks of vaccine. I'm very pro-vaccine, by the way, but but I just found it is extraordinary that he should. He always has to make, as you say, an attack out of something which well, could have been a positive message. I mean, for balance, I would have to point out that you know there is a point in that there there, there certainly is a, a, a class and a, and a wealth tier system. Mm inevitably in, you know probably inadvertently to who's getting the vaccine but why is prince harry the right person to be talking about that exactly. is my question but again you criticize me in social media you know, lies and nonsense that's being put on social media about vaccines fine but don't criticize the media by which he means mainstream media which on the contrary has been pushing the vaccine very very heavily um, i just think on, as is often the case these days he pontificates on things of which he knows very little well and we know he's he's definitely in the past made his views clear on freedom of speech mm. he's not that keen on it really is he no. i mean yeah it's just extraordinary okay do you think if he was still part of the firm a working member of the royal family how would he have been able to pontificate on this topic in the same way i think he'd be d discouraged from doing so frankly because every time he does come out and say something his lack of knowledge on certain issues becomes apparent there would definitely be a role for him and you know his experience with the military and that sort of thing. But even when they released their, their statement, when they said they were speechless about the events in Afghanistan and proceeded to tell us so in 200-odd <laughs> words, <laughs> um, yeah. that was actually yeah. a moment where Harry did know something, but it didn't seem to be from his point of view or his words. But this is this sense, isn't it, this kind of... Um, this sense that he is the right person to say something, that, that he really does feel he has a duty to use his platform to say something. That the world is waiting, waiting on tenderhooks yes, every yeah. day. What do Harry and Meghan think about this? <laughs> I don't I think, think they maybe, are. I think maybe some people are. They, I mean, they certainly, you know, this book is, is doing the business, but maybe they do. Just not 
just not you. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm in the minority of one. Now, I don't know um, if you... It's a shame that Piers hasn't mentioned it, but he was cleared this week by Ofcom for his comments um, <laughs> that he made on ITV for, about Meghan Markle. What, what did you make of the news? I was so delighted for Piers, actually. Uh, Piers and I sort of fell out some time ago uh, over issues of lockdown policy and hypocrisy. Uh, he'd actually blocked me on social media, but I defended him to the hilt on the day that he, he left uh, as GMB uh, and said he had a right to say what he wanted to say. He actually sent me a text message to thank me for my support, so all credit to him for that. Uh, but um, I, I think it's a wonderful victory for free speech. I think it's extraordinary that we needed to see this victory. So what is it, 58,000 people with nothing better to do with their time uh, wrote complaints to uh, Ofcom about uh, what, what he'd said. And basically what he said after the Oprah Winfrey interview was, I, I don't believe a word that this woman says. Now, the reality is, at least I think by the next day, we had at least five things that Meghan had claimed or Harry had claimed in that Oprah Winfrey interview, which were provably untrue. They were factually untrue. So he was perfectly entitled to say that. And, and him expressing his viewpoint pretty forcefully, but with... Uh, you know, his, his, his colleagues on air um, disagreeing with him. They put both sides. I find it extraordinary that, that people think that you shouldn't, as a journalist of all people, be allowed to criticise an incredibly powerful, wealthy person who's attacking uh, someone else who, who hasn't got a right of reply. Um, I think it's an extraordinary thing that anyone complained and that he lost his job over mm. it. So I think it's a great victory for freedom of speech. I, I think they should hire him straight back. Well, Kerry, I was yeah. just going to say this. In amongst all those thousands of complaints, there was one notable complaint oh, yes. from the Duchess of Sussex herself. And I thought that was really, really interesting because she presented to, her, you know, to, to the chief of ITV um, that she, her displeasure at it, um, which frankly, in my mind, just showed how incredibly thin-skinned the Sussexes are. Um, it wasn't libelous what he said, it was his point of view. And the fact that they would complain over that and, and that Meghan would use to kind of reach out to the female CEO of ITV, you know, woman to woman mm. in that way um, showed a kind of a desire to control the media. Um, mm. And I just thought it was quite telling of the whole way that the brand Sussex operates. Well, do you remember when they, um, a few months ago, might even have been a year ago now, they proclaimed that there were certain media outlets that they wouldn't communicate with anymore? Mm. And they said in that statement that, you know, of course nobody's beyond criticism. But it seems like they don't like any criticism. Well, that criticism, the one thing that irritates them beyond belief, isn't it? That yeah. They, uh, that, yeah, and again, just incredibly thin-skinned. But again, if, she's, if what he was saying was untrue, she could have hit back and, uh, and, and you know, proven the, the points that she made. But um, I just think it's really interesting that so many people spent their valuable time to make a complaint to defend this woman who'd very much played the victim card throughout um, uh, the, the whole uh, Megxit procedure, but particularly during that Oprah Winfrey interview, we saw, you know, close to tears, um, the victimhood uh, throughout this incredibly lengthy interview. And, and I thought it was extraordinary that she was still seen as someone who could play the victim card when she was using all of her power, her connection, her money, her might, her fame, uh, her marriage, everything to basically shut someone down and basically force someone out of a job. Well, that doesn't make you the victim, that makes you the bully. I think, yes, there's probably a lot of Meghan fans in there, but I think there was a lot of people who piled on because, you know, yeah. using Piers as a punching bag is a bit of a sport as well. Oh, I yes, think he, I mean, he rather enjoys he it. Knows the game. But anyway, <laughs> let's move on. So, that was strange now. One person has proved it is possible to be a pariah one moment and pulled back into the firm, and that is Sarah Ferguson. This summer, she has secured herself a best-selling book, one that doesn't air any royal dirty laundry, 
Lots of flattering press coverage and an invitation to Balmoral. Here's how Fergie got her groove back. For a long time, it seemed that Sarah Ferguson could only attract the wrong sort of headline. Whether it was stories about her business decisions or her love life, they always seemed to be causing the firm a right royal headache. But recently, a new narrative has emerged. One of the Duchess as a survivor, earning her own keep and being welcomed where she was once shunned. Her early story is marked by sadness. When she was just eight years old, her mother, Susan Wright, left the family for an Argentine polo player, leaving her and her sister Jane to be raised by her father, Major Ron. Susan's tale ended tragically in a car accident in 1998. Her time as a newlywed was a lonely one. After marrying Prince Andrew in 1986, the Duchess was told she would live alone in a flat in Buckingham Palace, while her husband was to stay in naval quarters. The pair only saw each other for 42 days a year. I was living in Andrew's Buckingham Palace apartments, which was pretty big, very nice, a bit old-fashioned. I, I remember going there a few times. But when things, you know, occasionally sort of went wrong, she, she felt she just didn't have Andrew's support. And she went to the Queen and Prince Philip and said... You know, I, I really want to be with my husband. Can't can't I stay, you know, with him at his naval quarters? And Prince Philip said rather curtly, well, you know, we manage, so can you. She might have won her prince, but she failed to win over the press, whose nicknames for her have included Freebie Fergie, Frumpy Fergie and the Duchess of Pork. Her involvement in various scandals didn't improve her public image. One of the first came in 1992, when she was photographed topless, having her toes sucked by Texan millionaire John Bryan while on holiday. In one image, two-year-old Princess Eugenie watched on as Mr Bryan kissed her mother on the lips. Never before had a royal been seen in this light. She and Prince Andrew separated shortly afterwards. In 2010, the News of the World tabloid released a hidden camera video showing Ferguson appearing to offer access to Prince Andrew to a man she believed was a wealthy Indian businessman for £500,000. She was seen to have been banished from the royal family, with her relationship with the Duke of Edinburgh said to be particularly frosty. So when it was revealed that she had been invited to spend the summer in Balmoral, it led many to ask how she'd made it back into the fold. Although she and Andrew divorced in 1996, they continued to live in the same house in Windsor. And despite the scandals, the Queen herself is said to have appreciated the loyalty the Duchess has shown to the family. Fergie has managed to maintain a, a very, very good relationship with the Queen because uh, she, she amuses the Queen. They have so many things in common. They both love horses. They, they're both interested in breeding, they love dogs, and the Queen is absolutely uh, delighted by Beatrice and Eugenie, and always was, and she always found them absolutely charming and beautifully mannered children. And of course, Fergie uh, is married to Andrew, and she's sort of steered him through his problems as well. And to this day, the Queen is, is very, very fond of Fergie, hence, her arrival at Balmoral this year. Over the years, Sarah Ferguson has tried numerous money-making activities with mixed success. However, her foray into the romantic fiction market with her royal-inspired Mills and Boone book, Her Heart of a Compass, has been an unexpected hit, rising up the UK bestsellers chart. 
In fact, there are even talks that it could be developed into a TV series and become the next Bridgerton. And while her ex-husband is losing his royal roles, there are even suggestions that the Duchess may be about to take some of the patronages left behind by Meghan and Harry, proving perhaps that the Sarah Ferguson story will have a happy ending after all. Well, I don't know about you, but 42 days only of Prince Andrew seems like a bit of a result to me. Good deal. But let's go back to my panel. It's not about what I think. Kate, a bit of fun there at the end of the, the Duchess's future role in the family. Do you seriously think there could be a time where she is invited back into, in any f official capacity? Well, I mean, she has this great, um, they say they're happily divorced, you know, they're the happiest divorced couple in the country. She still lives at Royal Lodge mm. in Windsor with Andrew. She has her own wing and, you know, <clears throat> has the benefit of his chef and housekeeper. It's a bit Anne of Cleves, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, sort of like all the money, none of the problems. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. She's been, I mean, she's been at, invited to Balmoral the past few years. And, I mean, I think the Queen probably realises that she's, she's some sort of stabilising kind of influence on, on Andrew. She's certainly his biggest fan. I had afternoon tea with her and Princess Beatrice name dropping um, a few years ago and she was, um, she's just a kind of force of nature. I mean she goes from one subject to the next within a heartbeat. She's got tons of drive and passion. She will defend Andrew till kingdom come and you know, she, you know they, they could do a lot worse. I mean, with all the other things they've got going on with the Sussexes and uh, you know Andrew's impending case in the states. I mean, the um, irony, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is really fascinating, yeah. especially all the criticism of of Meghan. It's going back to the horrific things were written about yeah. Sarah Ferguson for so much less. I mean, she was sort of keeping quiet, but just you know wore a frumpy dress or had dared to put on weight or, or, or sort of laughed too exuberantly at, a, at an official function. And I mean, the criticism of her was off the scale at the time. I think a lot of women, I think, feel a bit sort of sorry for her uh, because of that. And, but it is interesting, this, as you say, this incredibly happy divorce, they do still seem to be very close as a foursome, the, uh, Sarah and Andrew and the two girls. And, and it's obvious that, you know, we know that Prince Andrew is the Queen's favourite. And of course, uh, you know, Sarah then sort of comes along as part of the package deal. But I can't see her coming back in that role. She's still a Duchess, but she's not an HRH and, and won't return to be. And given her association with Andrew, with all all of the legal issues coming up for Prince Andrew. Uh, I think that, that they want to keep her away from the public eye as well. But look, the Queen is sitting there with all her variety of the, the, the other halves that her children and grandchildren have married. And she's thinking, turns out Fergie wasn't among the worst. No, I mean, it's just fascinating to me. But Kate, I want to change the subject for a minute. And you wrote a story in last weekend's Mail on Sunday about this so-called cash for access allegations for to a cash for access to Prince Charles. What, what can you tell us about that for those who missed it? Well, we unearthed an email um, that was sent by a chap called Michael Wynne Parker. He's essentially setting out how much it would cost if you wanted to meet the Prince of Wales. And for £100,000, you would be invited to meet the Prince of Wales at Dumfries House, which is this big house in, in Scotland that he's renovated and saved for the nation. And you would have dinner with HRH and there was sort of excruciating detail about, you know, after dinner entertainment, e.g. piano recital. And the following, you would have a sleepover and the following day you would be... It's uh, an know. expensive sleepover. I thought this image now. And then the next day, you know, you, you would see the Prince of Wales before you were escorted back to the airport, Glasgow airport, in a, in a royal car. And it was just an illuminating insight into how this money has been, has been funded. Now, 
the, mm. the Prince's Foundation were really, really quick to act. And they said they had ceased doing any work with these individuals and um, had launched an investigation into it. Um, and you might think, well, poor old Prince of Wales, he needs money for his charity. Here's somebody very rich. And isn't he a good egg for, for, yeah. for personally greeting them to thank them? But the problem is, what are these people getting for their money? It's not just a photograph with the Prince of Wales because they can use that photograph with the Prince of Wales to get, well, in one instance, a man used it, um, Dimitri Leis, used it to lobby the Home Office um, to get right to stay in this country. Oh, I see, because I was wondering what, what political influence the prince could have for you anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, I think yeah. It, it's huge. I mean, it's royalty, how well connected you are, and, yeah. then, and all these charitable donations that you're a, a contributor. I mean, there's no, there's no allegation of wrongdoing against Prince Charles or, or any of his charities. Absolutely. And, that, and yet, we know, was it 25% you exposed? 25% in total was going out. Uh, in, uh, in, you know, basically, as a commission to the people organising this. That's twenty five percent that getting was not going to the charity. And, yes. and what, what is the system of vetting for such donors? Well, they have this ethics committee, and presumably they are supposed to be vetting. So, in this instance, a former Russian banker had his five hundred thousand pounds returned to him after it emerged that perhaps he wasn't the sort of person they should be accepting donations from. But it's this kind of tangential kind of idea that uh, you're selling access to the royalty but what are they getting in return and should should the should royalty be for sale in that respect and has it not always been have well, senior royals I mean, not, the access to senior royals has always come about but also we you know we now have the situation with the montesino royals where they they there's a blatant commercialization mm. of being royal, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what do you think about that? But we've, but we've seen this all the way along in, in terms of you know the, the, the royals going and spending time with with other rich people and being well connected and everything being paid for. I mean, that's how you move in those circles. Um, but of course, it's always been done in a rather more subtle way in terms of you know the charitable donations and you get access that way and you move into that circle that way. This is now more blatantly being done, I think, by some people, the Russians and some big money men from the Middle East and elsewhere. And perhaps that's when it gets exposed. But oh, it's um, just feeling a bit tacky. Isn't it, well, it is. Well, yes, it is a bit tacky, and yeah. that's the issue. But the question is, uh, is when you ask, why is this random Russian banker giving hundreds of thousands of pounds to this particular charity? What's what is the, is this a cause close to their heart? Mm. And it really is. And I think that's when question marks should be raised. But does that mean that Prince Charles has done anything wrong in this? You know, he's he's spending an evening with probably ghastly, horrible, boring people and well, getting money most, for his most charities. Nights. Yeah. Those nights. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. to a certain extent, he comes out of this, I think, rather well. Mm. Well, yeah, I think he, he wants money for his charity. As Prince of Wales, he wants to build this legacy mm. and create these marvellous things and perhaps it's just looking at where is that money coming from a bit yeah. more closely. Mm. But, and what are they getting out of it? Because I mean, if you've got... Royal problems are just different to ours, aren't they? I mean, yeah, I, just I don't really have this different. issue. No. I, but I, I want to change the subject to finally another story that you've been covering, Kate. You've been very busy, and that's that William and Catherine might be on the move. Yeah, very good sources told me that, or several sources actually have told me that uh, the Cambridges are seriously considering a big move to Windsor. Um, and on the face of it, it would make perfect sense for them, of course. They're at Kensington Palace, so they've got their London offices and their London accommodation there. And then they have Anne Hall, which was a wedding gift from the Queen. And that made perfect sense. That's out in Sandringham in Norfolk. It made perfect sense while well, uh, William was a helicopter pilot out there. But now it makes more sense to be closer to the Queen. Um, 
and it's being huge... closer to your children's schools which are in London and given the huge sums of money that have been spent on uh, basically you know renovating Kensington Palace every single building seems to get renovated for a royal to live in and then they move out a few years later maybe they need new decorators maybe they need yeah it's yes. like well, we're running out of chances to spot our duchess shopping on the high street <laughs> then we better get in there <laughs> but that is all we have time for this week my thanks huge thanks to Kate Manzi and Julia Hartley Brewer and as always to you for watching we will see you next time on Palace Confidential bye-bye We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And of course, you can come back next week and join me, Joe Elvin, for more Palace Confidential. Mm -hmm.